Friends, before we uh, turn back to John 19 and uh, from verse 16, please join me in seeking God's face in, in prayer. Let's pray again. Lord our God, forgive us. And because so often our, our Sunday mornings are just a, a whirlwind, a rush. And very often we get ready, we leave the house, we come to church and we have yet even to prepare ourselves or to consider you or to pray to you. And then we find ourselves here with scripture open and uh, Lord God, in a sense, we find ourselves not ready to, to hear from you. And so we're acutely aware that we need you to change us and to act, Lord God, please. Lord God, we've, we've sung of the cross just now, and that phrase, we scarce can take it in, what has been done for us. And so we come and we consider these verses, and it is so marvelous in our sight. But we ask, Lord God, that in these moments you would shed new light on these great old truths that we've heard so many times before. Uh, as we pray so often, our greatest need at the moment is to hear uh, from you, our God, and to be changed evermore into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ by your word and spirit. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would do that and accomplish much. Lord, we humbly cry out in need. Please speak to your people. Please speak to your people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text uh, this morning is, as you will see it there, in John chapter 19 and verse 19. So our text, John 19 and verse 19. And there we read the following, don't we? There we read that Pilate... He also wrote an inscription, an inscription, a sign, and he put it on the cross. Pilate also wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross. Now, uh, we in here this morning, I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with the idea of inscriptions, aren't we, and, and, and signs. Uh, previously, as I've mentioned all too often, I, I, I lived in London, and that was a city famous for, amongst a lot of other things, famous for its blue plaques. Isn't that right? You've heard of these blue plaques. I'm sure these signs, inscriptions that state which famous person from history lived in that precise location. So London has got its inscriptions, but we have our inscriptions here in Dundee as well. Isn't that right? In fact, if we were just to go outside into the pouring rain uh, just now and, and go to the side of the church, what might we see? We might see the, the gravings and the, the gravestones. But what else might we see if we were to walk along the side, the path here? We might see that famous inscription near the gate on that stone and the pathway with the word eternity graven into it. So every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, we're familiar with the idea of inscriptions. Here's the thing. What we are going to consider in our time together this morning is no ordinary sign, no ordinary inscription. This board that was fastened to the cross above our Lord's head as he died there at Golgotha. This was surely the most important sign there has ever been. This is an inscription that we will see hopefully today. An inscription that if we are to be right with God, it is a truth that must be embraced and embraced by all. But to be frank with you, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> first things first, I know that we may be familiar with John's gospel, uh, but do we not, if we're going to understand this sign, do we not have to have the context firmly in view this morning? So how about this just now? How about you and I, we look at the beginning of this section from verse 16, and how about you and I walk together through some of the preliminary details that lead up to this sign? Will we do that? So if you look at verse 16, let's walk together at some of the, the details leading up to the sign. What do we find before us in Scripture? 
from verse 16. Do you see? First, we see that they, they took Jesus. So that is that after they have flogged our Lord and tortured our Lord, and after Pilate has interrogated Jesus, that is that the soldiers now, those brutal, fierce Roman soldiers, that in a sense, they at this point now take charge of our Lord. Already? Is it not rather intimidating? Read on. They took Jesus and he went out. Now, look, he went out bearing his own cross to, to the place of the skull, bearing his own cross. Now, I think the details of that are, are, are rather straightforward in a sense, aren't they? I mean, you can see what is happening. Now, now bleeding and exhausted. It's at this point here that the Lord Jesus Christ is made to carry. Now, let's get this correct. He is made to carry not the full cross. But he is at this moment, bleeding, exhausted, made to carry the cross bar, what was called the patibulum. And he is made to carry this cross beam uh, along the, what was called the Via Dolorosa, out of Jerusalem and towards Calvary. I think, do you know what? I think the details of that are reasonably straightforward, but would you not agree that it is fascinating for at least a couple of reasons? I mean, I mean that is fascinating just for how this differs to the other gospel accounts, in a sense. I mean, do you see it? You know it. Don't you? What does Matthew focus on? Mark? What does Luke focus on? The fact that at this point here, Simon of Cyrene, such was the later exhaustion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his pain. The fact that Simon of Cyrene would take over this cross. And John, John doesn't even mention this. He has other fish to fry. It's interesting from that perspective. But is it not a sense also interesting for the imagery that it, that it calls to your mind and to, to my mind? Because although John here does not specifically allude to it, Surely you see it in, in Jesus carrying this wooden patibulum on his back as he ascends this mount to Golgotha. Are we not sent back to Genesis 22? Are we, are we not sent back to Isaac? Are we not sent back to Isaac bearing on his own back the wood for his own sacrifice, his own altar, your Lord? Your Lord went out bearing his own cross. But then would you do this? Would you look back? Would you look back at the text? I think if you do that, you'll see that John, the author here, is very, very concerned that you and I have the exact positioning of Jesus' cross right in our heads. Do you notice if you look at verse 18, what does John say? He wants you to know, he wants me to know, that Jesus was crucified with others, but it's more than that if you look at the detail, isn't it? It's not just with others. It's, did you see it's executed between two others with one on either side of him? So John is concerned that this very morning, the people of God, you and I, that we have, as we consider the cross, Isaiah chapter 53 ringing in our ears as we come to the table, as we consider the cross, the fact that there, what do you see as you look to the cross? You see the suffering servant. You see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But you see that in death he was numbered with transgressors. But what have I done? <laughs> do you see that I've missed out a detail at the beginning of verse 18? Now you hear the words, so concise and so succinct, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. We have to be careful with the language. But I do think it is very important that we appreciate the great variety that existed in the ancient world, the great variety in how a person could be crucified. Great variety in that. Now, yes, 
So the person bearing this cross being this patibulum, they get to the point of, of the, the place of crucifixion, and yes, they had to lie back onto the ground. The patibulum on their, their back, lie back against the stake so that the cross might be put together. Yes, that is true, but you need to understand that the person might be nailed to that cross in a great variety of horrible, contorted positions. And as this cross is then held up and positioned into place, I wonder, do you realize that very often there was something of a seat that was jutting out of the cross? Do you appreciate that? Very often there was a ledge. And this was a ledge that was designed not to alleviate pain. This was a seat alleged that was designed to intensify and to increase the pain of the victim, making it all harder or all the more difficult for that person to, to catch any breath at all. Yes, friends, I think we can hear all the time that crucifixion was an, an abomination. We hear that. Like we, we hear that it was a disgrace. We can hear from you know, contemporary historians that it was oh, the, the most despicable, disgraceful way to die. We can hear that. Do you know what? I think in our modern world, and it's so sanitized, everything about us, I think we can struggle to grasp how barbaric this was. I think we can really struggle to grasp how revolting crucifixion was. It was horrific. Your Lord died, and it was horrific. But it is at this moment that the author John, he takes you, and he raises your gaze ever so slightly. He moves our eyes, and we are to look at this placard, this sign above our Lord's head. Now, It seems to have been common um, in antiquity, common in the ancient world, actually for one of two things, one of two things uh, to be done with a sign. So officials in the ancient world, what they would do is they would publicly declare the crimes of the condemned person. But they would do that in one of two ways, usually. So they would publicly declare the, the crimes, either by having a person walk in front of the crucified person with a sign on the way up to the cross, if you like, to walk in front of them. They would do that. Or what officials might do is they might hang a sign of the crimes around the condemned person's neck. Now, whether or not that happens in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ I suppose we we don't know, but what we do know is that right at this moment at Golgotha, what what occurs? Right at this moment, this sign that Pilate, did you notice that Pilate himself has had written? Right at this moment, this sign is affixed to the cross, a sign that declares what? Did you notice? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Here's the question this morning. Why? I mean, what do we learn in this placard? What do we learn in this thing? Like, you can see, all of us can see that it's important and crucial. You know, don't you, that all four gospel accounts, they record this sign. Clearly, God wants us to pay attention to this. But why? What do we learn? Well, in the short time that we have remaining, what I want to suggest this morning, what I want to suggest are three things, three truths, three realities that we learn from this cross above Jesus' head. So you've got scripture already over in front of you. Keep it there, please. But three things. First, friends, understand that this was a derogatory sign, a derogatory sign. Um, I think um, at this point in time, uh, we in this country are all too uh, familiar with tensions existing between our government and the general population. Is that fair enough? Is that true? 
we know lots of tensions between our governing officials and the general uh, populace. There's lots of examples that I could go for, but perhaps uh, we'll go for coronavirus, the, the COVID especially. Let's go for that. We're familiar with the tensions that exist with our government's ever-changing regulations and with our ever-growing defiance of these regulations. What's happening? There is frustration building. Where's the frustration? The frustration is in government and the frustration is with the people. Are we familiar with the, the tensions that are? Yeah, I think we all, we all are, absolutely. Well, if you and I are going to understand the sign on the cross, you and I have to understand that something very, very similar to that was existing in Palestine in the first century world. Tensions existing between the officials and the populace. Now, are you with me? Think, first of all, about that from the Jewish perspective. So, I would ask you, who is ruling over the Jews at the moment here? And you would say back to me, it's, 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 it's the Roman Empire. It's, in fact, it's the rotten Roman Empire. Isn't it? Let's face it. You know, this foreign, fierce, invading force. Let's be a little bit more specific. Who is ruling? Who is governing over the Jews here? We all know the answer. It is... Pilate, Pilate, like a man who is renowned for his stubborn, cruel leadership, like a man. See, when we get into John 19 at this point in history, Pilate is a man whose leadership, whose governance has led to at least a couple of recent revolts. So Pilate is ruling over the Jews. But then you think about it, if you think about the Jewish perspective, think about it from much more importantly, think about it from Pilate's point of view. Now, you know this portion of Scripture. So I ask you, what has just happened? Think about it from Pilate's perspective. What's just happened? The Jews have just forced his hand. Isn't that right? Pilate's supposed to be in charge. But such has been their complaining, such has been their, their, their moaning, their trans against what's happened, that the Jews have actually forced Pilate to act in a way that he doesn't want to do. In Jesus' trial, they have forced him to sentence this innocent man to death. This is happening to Pilate. So do you not see what Pilate is doing in this sign? What is he doing as he writes, Jesus, King of the Jews? What is he doing? He is seeking revenge on the Jewish population, on the Jewish leaders. Do you see it? As he inscribes Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, Pilate, yes, he is ridiculing the Jewish people. Yes, he's mocking them. But it's worse, he's goading them. Calvin says this, that what Pilate is doing, he's avenging himself in the sign, avenging himself on a people who have been frustratingly obstinate. Now, what you and I could do just now is we could think about the outworking of this tension as you see it in verse 21. Have a look at verse 21. Do you see that the Jews are incensed by this sign? And they petition Pilate. You change the wording and he's having absolutely none of it. You can cut the tension with a knife, can't you? We could look at the outworking of that. But instead this morning, as we think about coming to the table later on, I think we have to consider these dynamics and that tension from Jesus' perspective as he hung there on the cross. And in fact, at this moment, I would like to speak to the younger people in the room. I know there's quite a few of you in this morning, so I want you to listen to me. If you class yourself as a younger person, I want to ask you a favor. I want you to try and imagine your friends and your friends being mocked and ridiculed. Now wait for what I'm going to say. Imagine your friends being mocked and ridiculed all for their association with you. Now can some of the young people try and imagine that? Can you imagine a group of horrible bullies in your school? I'm sure there's some, right? A group of horrible bullies and they are Oh, they're attacking your group of friends and they're mocking them and laughing at them for being so uncool. 
and you approach, what happens? This group of bullies, they point at you and they say if your friends, they must be so uncool to have you as one of their number. Can you imagine it? Or, or with sports, your team loses and the opponents are laughing at your teammates and they're ridiculing your teammates and you approach and what do these horrible bullies in the other team say? They say, this team must be rubbish to have and they pointed you to have you, to have this person and your team. Do you see it? Like younger people, do you see it? Like it's one thing to be mocked. It's something far worse to be used as an instrument to be used in the mockery and ridicule of other people. That is horrendous. And then the rest of us, and the younger people too, now we consider the shame of this sight. And we consider what it must have been like for the Lord Jesus Christ upon that cross. Do you see what Pilate's doing? Yes, he's mocking. Yes, there's ridicule. But he is using Jesus as an instrument of mockery. Like he's saying, Pilate is saying to the Jews, you must be so pathetic if this dying man is your king. You must be so pitiful if this dying man is the best that you have. Don't you see it? Isn't it awful? This is the Lord of glory. This is the righteous one. This is the king of kings, the son of God. And such is his shame on the cross. That he's simply being used to goad and to goad his people. What is that sign? That is a derogatory sign. Second of all, though, we must appreciate that it is an accurate sign. It is an accurate sign. I'm sure that lots of you in, in the room uh, will be familiar uh, with the story of Caiaphas, the high priest, and his unwitting prophecy. Do we know that story from scripture? Caiaphas, the high priest, and his unwitting prophecy. Yes, we know it, don't we? We know it well. John 11. So Caiaphas, the high priest, he stands before the Sanhedrin, and though he didn't understand the full implications of what he was saying, what did he say? What did Caiaphas say? He prophesied what? That it was better for one man to die for the nation. He, he prophesied of the blessing of the death of the Lord Jesus. Can I ask you, what is that with Caiaphas? What is that as you look at that? Is that not God using a person to declare a message that is greater than that person ever intended? Can I say that again to make sure you have it? What do we see with Caiaphas? What do we see? God using a person to declare a message that was greater than that person ever, ever, ever intended. Now, as you consider Pilate having written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Surely all of us in here understand that something similar was occurring. Do you understand that? Don't you see what's happening here? The almighty God is at work behind the writing of the sign. Isn't that marvelous in our sight? This is God using this unbelieving pagan Roman governor to declare and to testify the reign and to the rule of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Now, you know your Bibles. So I'm sure that you're aware that the theme of kingship, kingship is something that has existed even before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us understand. What, we've already got one eye on Christmas do we? Certainly judging by what's in our shops. So what is it that the wise men ask as they approach and enter Bethlehem? What, is, what do they ask? Where is he born? King of the Jews. So I think we appreciate that there is this long-lasting theme of kingship in Scripture. What I want you to grasp this morning with both hands is how that theme of kingship it not only exists, but escalates in the gospel of John itself. Has everybody got it? How the theme of kingship builds, builds, grows, snowballs in the gospel of John 
itself. Now, I'm saying that to you, the theme of kingship in John's gospel. So where does your mind go, Christian friend? The theme of kingship in John's gospel. What what do you think about? I think some of us maybe think about John 12 and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We all know the story. The young people know the story, don't we? Jesus going into Jerusalem on a donkey. What does John record in John 12? Which prophecy? Do you know it? He says, fear not, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king. See your king comes to you riding on a foal, the coat of a donkey. Yeah, yes. Kingship, we go to John 12. But there's more. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me. Would you look at John chapter 18? Just turn back a page if you've got a Bible. John 18, verse 33. I'll even employ the services of Stuart. Look at that. John 18, verse 33. We're looking at this escalating theme of kingship in John's gospel. Look at verse 33. Now look at this. Jesus has been interrogated. And, and, and what, what is the question Pilate asks? What's the focus in verse 33? Do you see it? Are you, are you king? King of the Jews. Look on to verse 37. Do you see it at the bottom there? It's the same thing. Now, if we move on to chapter 19... And verse 2, look at this. If you don't have a Bible, look on the screen. It's over to the soldiers now. What do the soldiers do? Look at it. They twist the crown. And they put a royal robe on our Lord. And there's all of this fake, faux homage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at this in verses 14 and 15. If you move on, Stuart, look at this. Again, this time it's before all of the crowds. Before everyone, look at what does Pilate declare Jesus to be royal? Look at the language. King, time, time, time again. You've got this kingship in John. Kingship, kingship. Jesus is king. Now, because of that, we, you and I, could make a mistake right now here. We could think, therefore, that this sign on the cross is nothing more than the last in a long line of similar moments. Couldn't we think like that? There's been all these moments of kingship and this sign on the cross is just the latest in that long line. It is not. I need you to understand. See that sign? That's the culmination. That's the moment we've been waiting for. There's been this big crescendo in John's gospel and this sign's the apex. This is the climax, the moment. In fact, I need you to think about Westminster Abbey. Think about Westminster Abbey on the whatever it was, 2nd of June, 1953, and the coronation of the Queen. I'm guessing nobody was at it. But maybe you've seen it, a clip on YouTube. You've seen it on the news, the coronation. Well, you must understand that just as there was on that day, so much in the way of preliminary pomp and circumstance before the queen actually took her seat on the throne. You see that, don't you? So much preparatory, preliminary pomp, preliminary songs, preliminary vows before that great and final moment. So you have to understand in John's gospel, all these other moments of kingship, they have been preparatory They have been preliminary. They have been building up to a great moment. And what is that? At last, what is declared in the sign? It's the moment. This moment at the cross is the very enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you understand? That this crucifixion, in a very real way, was the coronation of the King of Kings. You have this horrific mode of Roman execution, this barbaric, revolting cross. But in actual fact, what is it? It is our Lord Jesus Christ's throne, his throne of glory. Someone else famously said that what we see when we look at the cross as the king, he is now enthroned, and what we see is Jesus Christ reigning now, reigning from a tree. And there's something in me And there's something in you, I'm sure, that cries out, how can that be? I mean, how can the eternal king of kings be enthroned on a cross? But if you are a Christian this morning, you know the answer. Why was he there? 
He was reigning there for you. He was there for you. He was there for me. He was doing on that cross what a king does. And he was acting for the benefit of his subjects. As king, he was waging war against your sin, against my sin. He was facing the wrath of his father, our sin in our place. And so when you consider it, isn't it not just mysterious, but isn't it marvelous, Christian friends? Because what Pilate wrote was inadvertently true. What Pilate thought was a moment of utter shameful defeat was actually the moment of greatest victory in all of human history. Who's on the cross? The king is on the cross. Who's on the cross? The divine monarch is there. What is the cross but a throne? He rules. He reigns. There is the king. The king of his chosen people. So this is a derogatory sign. But we praise God because it is an accurate sign. And then the last thing, and in closing, you and I have to note that it was also a universal sign. A universal sign. So I hope you've been with me. I hope you see that we've, we've noted Pilate's attempt to insult and ridicule the Jews in this sign. What else has happened? We've seen in this sign God's declaration of beautiful truth. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. One last detail. And that detail is the trilingual nature of this sign. So can I ask you, all of us, let's look at verse 20 just to know what happens. Can we look at verse 20? We see there that Pilate has the sign written in, whichever way around you want, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. Trilingual sign, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. I think, actually, you know, you and I, it might seem a bit strange to us. I think we're really familiar with this sort of idea of a multilingual sign, aren't we? Most of us at some point in time, even if you're new to Dundee, most of you, we will all have taken maybe a drive around Scotland to see the sights of Scotland. Have we done that? If you haven't done it, you're new to Dundee, then you need to get out there. But we've probably all done that. We've all probably taken a drive around Scotland. And so you know what it's like, do you? You know, you, let's say you go off to the West Coast. It's good to get West Coast weather for us for this illustration as well. Uh, but we go off to the West Coast and you go to some of the more popular touristy towns and villages. And you're leaving that town. Let's say, whatever, Girloch, let's go for that, or Gullapool or something like that. You're leaving the, the, the tourist town and there's a sign on the side of the road. What's the sign say? The sign says, drive on the left. But the sign doesn't just say drive on the left, does it? So the sign will say, drive on the left, continue a gauche, links foreign. Won't it? Like we're familiar with the idea. It's not too alien. We're familiar with the idea of a multilingual sign. Why here? I mean, Pilate has this sign written in different languages. Why does he do it? Well, yes, of course, we have to think about it from a Roman perspective for a moment. So I would ask you, wait, what time of year was this? What's happening in Jerusalem? It's Passover, isn't it? So this is a time of year where people from all over the known world were flocking in great numbers to Jerusalem, weren't they? Why? To celebrate the feast, to celebrate the Passover. So can you see it from Pilate's perspective? He's seizing the moment to provide the greatest possible deterrent against sedition. Do you see it? He has this written in what? In Latin. Why? It's the the language of the empire. Why? So that all of the Romans will look to the cross and be warned against rebellion. Then he writes it in Aramaic, which was the common language of the time. Why? Why? 
so all the Jews would look to the cross and be warned against rebellion. He writes it in what? Greek, the international language at the time. Why? So that absolutely everybody else would do the same. Are you with me? Pilate writes this sign in three languages that every single section of the general population, every single element of the populace would look at the cross and understand that they would look at the cross and be warned. But Christian friends, what have we just said? We've said behind Pilate's hand, God Almighty, is acting in this sign. And surely we all understand what God is doing. God, in having the sign written in these three languages, he is showing to all the people of the world in their own tongue that their recovery is a king and a king for them. God has this written in three languages that people from all over the world could look at Calvary and see in their very own language, in their very own tongue. As they look at this crucified man, they could see there, there is a king for all types of people. As Pilate, as he tries to provide this universal deterrent, no, 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 God is acting to provide universal testimony, universal testimony that there at the cross was the king of kings, a king for all types of people. And so as we end this sermon, I have to end with two probably very, very direct and blunt appeals, two appeals with which I end. The first is for you, if you're in here, and you are a Christian, and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. If that is you, listen, let me use a, a, an out-of-date word, a date from antiquity, a, date, a, a word from yesteryear. Christian friend, at this point in time, are you backsliding? That's an old word, isn't it? But it's maybe not such a bad word. Is that where you are at? Like, do you know that of your own heart? Are you seeing that? That you're living in a way that is rebelling against your king just now in obvious ways that you are defying his wishes, defying in the way that you live, defying his word? Is that you? Then this morning, surely in the face of John 19, surely you come running back to Jesus Christ. I mean, you think about it. He was enthroned Where? On a cross for you. What does that tell you about your king? What does it say? But he's gracious. Your king right now, he is willing to accept you, embrace you. He's willing to forgive you. He's a God, a king of grace. And he's summoning you back to himself. What do you do? But you run to your king, don't you? You fall to him on bended knee in praise and in prayer. But then there has to be a, a second appeal. And, and that's to, to the people in the room, of course. But the people who might join online today, in the future, whenever it might be. But the people who don't know Christ as Savior. If that's you, honestly, I'd love for you to, to hear this. Listen to me. As king, Jesus was prophesied, wasn't he? As king, Jesus was born. As king, Jesus lived. What do we see in John chapter 19? What do we see? But as king, Jesus Christ died. As king, Jesus would rise. As king, Jesus would ascend. And if you are not a Christian, I need you to know, hear it, that one day soon, as king, Jesus Christ will return. And so I urge you not to do as the chief priests and the scribes did here and reject the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. They cry out, we've got no king but Caesar. Don't do that. Instead, this morning, just now, 
Do what is demanded by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, pledge your allegiance to the King by your repentance and faith. Hear the appeal. Today, turn away from your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn towards the King of Kings. Kiss the Son. Turn to Jesus Christ. Because if you do that, I can make you this promise. You will have, from this point onward, you will have your own inscription. If you turn away from your sin to the King of Kings this morning, then your name will be forever inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life. Friends, let's, let's pray, but let's pray to our King in Jesus Christ. Behold your King. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we look to you and wonder at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you uh, so much for this record of events. We thank you for its truth, for its accuracy. But we thank you also for the record and the truth of this sign. We look at it and we understand by your grace and your grace alone, Jesus of Nazareth, who is he? He is King of the Jews. Lord God, may it be that your name is forever praised. Amen. Now we are, um, we're going to go to the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate communion uh, together as a church. Um, let me just uh, explain a few things about communion um, and then we will sing. And maybe during uh, the singing in a moment or two, one of the elders can go out and get the, the older Sunday school uh, class. Uh, so first of all, what is this? We've got a table covered in cloths and there's stuff on it. But what, what is this? Um, well, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the church, but it's a sacrament of the New Testament where in the giving and the receiving of bread and wine, little bits of bread, little bits of wine, Jesus Christ's death is portrayed, it is shown to us. So God does stuff here. God acts when we partake of the supper appropriately just now. What does God do? He acts to strengthen our faith, Christian friend. He acts to renew his covenant with you. And he also acts to remind you that you belong to him. Now, I think there's a lot of mistakes that we can make with the Lord's Supper. Lots. There's a couple of obvious ones in different directions that we can make. One side is the misunderstanding that in the Lord's Supper, see these bits of bread and wine, there's the misunderstanding that somehow they are transformed into the actual flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think, hopefully, we know that not to be the case. But on the other side, there's a more common fallacy, common mistake. And that is that this is simply just a memorial meal. Are you in danger of thinking like that? That this is just a memorial, it's just a commemoration, a dry commemoration of Jesus' death. And that is not the case either. No, Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, the bread and the wine is actually his body and blood. That what is happening, though Jesus Christ right now, of course, he is in heaven, by the work of his Holy Spirit, we really are enabled spiritually to feast on Christ. Spiritually, we are actually being strengthened. We are actually being spiritually nourished in this meal. It is not just a remembrance. It's not just a commemoration. Then I've got a question for you. Should you partake of this meal? It's a big question, isn't it? Well, let's hear what, what's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me read part of answer question 81 because it asks the question, who should come to the Lord's table? We need to know the answer. Who should come to the Lord's table? 
And it gives this answer. Those who are cut to the heart. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin, but who nevertheless, they trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered. How? By the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Those people who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. In short, who is it that should partake in this meal? Those who know that they are sinners. Those who know that they are sinners. But those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to make them clean. Is that you? Then you, you have to be here. I mean, are you a baptized member of a, of a church that, that, that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaims the gospel, and you're in good standing in the church? This is where we go. We go to feast in Christ. But by the same token, hear me if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Christ, the elements are going to go around the church in a moment. Hands up. Refuse the elements. Now let me say, we will do as we've done throughout most of this year. We've changed how we're doing communion. So you will be passed a bit of bread. If you're a Christian, take a piece of bread and hold it. Let's hold it so that every one of the body of Christ together has a bit of bread. And then what do we do? What do we get to do? We get to eat together. So hold the bread and we'll do the same with the wine. It'll be passed out. You hold the wine and then I'll speak. And then we drink together as the body of Christ before the King of Kings. So with these uh, things said, someone can go and get uh, the, the older class and we are going to uh, sing to God's praise as we go forward to the table. And we're going to sing in Psalm number 118. So it's Psalm 118, and we're singing from verse 15 to verse 24. Triumphant shouts of joy resound in places where the righteous dwell. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. His mighty hand does all things well. And so the elders will come forward. And we will stand as we sing. Let's stand and sing. Triumphant shouts of joy resound in places where the Because of allergies, uh, we have prepared a non-alcoholic version of the wine, which is a different color. So if you need that, please mention that to the elders as they go around. But we are at the table of the Lord. 
And so it's only fitting that we bow before our God in prayer. Would you join me in praying to God? Let's pray. Lord God, in other traditions, there is the word Eucharist used of what we are doing in these moments. And Lord God, we might differ in some ways from those traditions. But Lord God, we grasp wholly what that word means. That we are here as a thanksgiving. That this is a thanksgiving meal. And so Lord, as we have read and heard from you in John 19, how can we not be filled with gratitude for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in his life in facing suffering and ridicule and persecution and hardship, but in his death. Lord God, we will, we will never know the extent and the depths of the pain that the Lord Christ faced, the pain of bearing our sin in his body on that tree. We thank you. We're also filled with joy that what this is in this meal is a proclamation. We proclaim as we partake, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That atoning death, that saving death, that death that provides forgiveness. And so we rejoice that you would use us to proclaim and herald that to the world. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy in communion. We thank you that it is fellowship with our brethren, our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can eat together and look to each other, and that is a joyous thing. But we do delight all the more that in this meal is found fellowship with you. You are at the head of the table. And Lord God, we, we marvel that you've invited us to, to dine with you. What grace, oh God. And we praise you and we thank you that this is just a preparatory meal. It is an appetizer for the time when we will be in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be at your table and we will feast in the marriage banquet of the Lamb. Lord God, keep our focus on Christ and that coming day we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read from the Bible, from Scripture, from 1 Corinthians. And what I read is the warrant for what we're doing at this time. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. The elders will distribute the bread.